podcast from Fulcrum Strategies. I'm Matthew Handley, and with me as he is, usually, is our president and CEO, Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you, sir? I'm doing good. I hope you are as well. I'm doing well. Uh, you were at the ASA conference in Vegas last weekend. Uh, I hope that was successful and uh, that uh, you met, we met some good people there for on with the Fulcrum team. Absolutely. It was a great, great show. Uh, today, we're continuing our discussion on prior authorizations. Last week, we talked about a new CMS rule uh, that, as we mentioned, was only uh, narrowly applicable to Medicare and other government plans. We're going to be talking a little bit more about prior authorizations today. With uh, You sent me this morning, Ron, something from Cigna that uh, one of their press releases that they had about why they like prior authorizations and how good they are. Uh, to healthcare, and then uh, in the second part of the program, I want to talk about a new law that was just passed and enacted in uh, New Jersey, regulating prior authorizations in that state and where that does and doesn't apply. So, Ron, first, let's talk about Cigna, your former employer. Uh, they like to uh, they seem to be promoting their use of prior authorizations. Um, I'm not sure when this particular press release was published, but uh, this is the typical talking points we see from the payers. So if you don't mind, give me the rundown of, of what Cigna is arguing when they think prior authorizations are good. Yeah, so um, yeah, I saw this, and I think this was, uh, I think, maybe mid-23 when it came out, but I just uh, got the attention of it. And and the first thing that hit me was there's this big, bold, sort of like a, almost like a news headline that says, Prior authorizations help keep patients safe, improve health, and make care more affordable. And, and what struck me was, are they saying that they have to keep us safe from all these unscrupulous doctors that would do unsafe things? <laughs> and I mean, right. it just was yeah. so audacious that it, it hit me that, like, I can't believe they've even uttered that. And again, this is the company that got sued for you know, having computer algorithms that denied tens of thousands of, of cases sort of, you know, without review. Um, so then, you know, you sort of read through it and it's, it's them sort of building their case on why this is such a wonderful thing. And it's such payer drivel that um, it's almost hard to get through it. And it, it, to be honest with you, it reminded me of politician speak, but uh, I just wanted to point out a couple of things that mm -hmm. just sort of like smack me. Um, and these are, and I'll, I'll sort of read right from the thing. Um, one data point that we are proud of since 2014, prior authorizations have led to the potential avoidance of over 500 new cancer cases among Cigna customers by preventing or limiting radiation exposure from medically unnecessary T CT scans. Okay. First of all, what study is that from? What kind of peer review did it do? You're claiming that without you, there would have been 500 new cancer cases. All right, let's go ahead and have some proof. Let's see where that comes from. And unless you can do that, what on earth are you doing? Um, and you're you're basically saying that these doctors were, you know, ordering all these unnecessary CT scans and then making the jump to. Um, and that would have caused cancer. Now I get that unnecessary radiation presents at risk of cancer, but there's an awful lot of assumptions there with nothing to back it up um, and no data behind it. So that one sort of you know, struck me as sort of really problematic. Um, well, let, me, let me ask you this, let me, let me jump in real quick. Just on that point, are there any studies that you're aware of that 
shows that, you know, people, Cigna patients getting CT scans are more likely to get cancer. Any patient getting a CT scan is more likely to get cancer from any other radiology procedure. Well, so, you know, it's well understood that the, the dosage of radiation from a CT scan is fairly significant. Okay, mm -hmm. so, and you can draw the conclusion, well, if you get too many of them with any radiation, it's going to increase your chance of getting, of getting cancer. The problem that I have is sort of, first of all, you know, how are you payer making the determination that these were unnecessary, especially mm -hmm. when your track record is auto denial based on computer algorithm. Okay. The other thing is a lot of times these payers look at unnecessary by checking on the back end and saying, okay, well, it came back fine. Therefore it was unnecessary, but you didn't know that before you ran the scan, you know, a fair number of medical tests rule out something. You know, you may say, well, look, I'm not sure what this is and I've got to do this scan or this test to rule out the really bad thing. So when a test comes back normal, that's not always a horrible thing. That still gives the doctor, you know, information about, oh, well, thank God it's not that. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, I had a, I, I have a situation where I have Meniere's disease and it was manifesting itself through really bad vertigo and, and, um, you know, different things, tinnitus, et cetera, and loss of hearing in one ear. Well, one of the things they did was an MRI of the brain to make sure that it wasn't neuroblastoma or any of these other mm -hmm. things. Okay, that, that MRI back, came back clean, which was great because then we didn't have to worry about that anymore. doesn't mean it was unnecessary. Um, and so this conclusion that they jump and then just making this bold statement that we've, we've you know, kept over 500 people from getting cancer is, is ridiculous um, mm -hmm. on the surface of it. And it's just meant to be you know, um, just that, yeah. um, it, to politician talk. Yeah. I remember uh, I had, uh, last summer I had a, my gallbladder removed in order to, to diagnose that I, I obviously had to have some, some different scans done. And the first one I remember they did, it was an ultrasound. They couldn't see anything on that, but then they had to do the HIDA scan. Uh, and that one ended up confirming the fact that basically my gallbladder was non-functional and, uh, that ended up getting, uh, the prior authorization, either the hospital where I had it done at, they didn't file the paperwork correctly or whatever the case was, but they didn't get the proper prior authorization. Now I didn't get a bill, but in the end that service showed that ex diagnosed exactly what my problem was. Uh, and for whatever reason, our, my carrier determined that it was not, you know, wasn't appropriate for whatever reason, obviously didn't get up, didn't end up getting billed for it, but that's another in instance, at least anecdotally of, you know, is it really unnecessary when at least in some cases it's obviously diagnosing things? And again, I'm not going to make the claim that every physician is perfect in what sure, they order. Absolutely. Um, and we all, we all understand that, but, but trying to take the moral high ground when you're an insurance company, especially one who has been found guilty of defrauding the federal government with, with bad information on Medicare, who is, you know, currently under significant pressure and lawsuits for, auto denying tens of thousands of claims, trying to take the moral hall ground that we're doing this to save patients and improve quality of care, really a slippery slope to be on for them. Um, one of the other things in, the, in this was, um, and this is set up, this whole thing is set up as these questions, these sophomore mm -hmm. questions to the, you know, to the, what, what is supposedly their senior medical director. Can you share an example of how prior authorizations have helped real patients um, and whether this is a true story or not is in, in some ways a little irrelevant. Um, 
But they go on to say, one of our medical directors, who is a spine surgeon, and part of me thought, well, gosh, I mean, that's great that you found one that is actually, mm-hmm. you know, providing a, a denial or on a case that's within their purview, because most of the time it isn't. Recently did not authorize a lumbar spinal fusion surgery, suggesting extensive physical therapy instead. Now, of course, the spine surgeon, and, and he may have been right, I'm not, but first of all, has never seen the patient, is only operating potentially on medical records. We know from, let's say, the Aetna medical director testimony in California that they often don't even look at the medical records. They're following the advice of a nurse. But regardless, let's say he really did a full review. Um, said suggesting extensive physical therapy instead. Once a lumbar spinal fusion is done, it's irreversible. The vertebrae can never be can never move independently again. And unfortunately, many of these surgeries are performed without strong clinical evidence of medical necessity. Again, making accusations like that, especially from an insurance company, makes me really sort of Mm -hmm. my skin crawl. Sure, there are surgeons who do things, you know, that otherwise maybe they shouldn't have done. But they're trying to make the inference here that this is happening all over the place. And I just don't think there's evidence to that. And then they go to say the patient was unhappy at the time, but wrote us later several months to say that our approach had worked, saving him unnecessary surgery while improving his health outcome. All right. I don't know whether that's a true story or not. Right. But taking that one anecdotal piece as a evidence of, you know, everything we do is for the patient is just BS. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I liked at the bottom, they, uh, they talked a little bit about without naming it, their, uh, computer tool that just automatically processes <laughs> yeah. claims and denies it. Um, I wonder if they will want to not talk about that anymore, given their current class action lawsuit. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I, I thought that was great too. They talked about that, you know, the, the, um, the average time for, um, for their prior authorization process fell from an average of 18.7 hours to 5.7 hours. I well, that's cause you're auto denying stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's an easy thing to do yep. if, if you're just going to sort of auto deny, um, so the, the whole thing was incredibly self-serving and to be honest with you, to me, even with the general public, that opening statement about it's all about keeping patients safe and improving health is an insult to everybody's intelligence. We know what it's about. It's about money. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, and I'd have felt much better if they'd have just at least been honest about that. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about Cigna's, uh, you got a press release about why they like prior authorizations. Now, take all that, Ron, especially with this headline, you know, the headline they published on this uh, article, which we'll have in the show notes. Prior authorizations help keep patients safe, improve health, and make care more affordable. Remember that. Now, I want to talk about the new law that they just enacted in New Jersey about prior authorizations. And this is at the be- the, the very beginning of the law, the introduction to it. The legislature finds and declares that the physician-patient relationship is paramount and should not be subject to third-party intrusion. B, the prior authorization programs place attempted cost savings ahead of optimal patient care. Prior authorization programs shall not be permitted to hinder patient care or intrude in the practice of medicine. And prior authorization programs must use, this include the use of written clinical criteria and reviews by appropriate physicians to ensure fair process to patients. Now, if you take that introduction, Ron, to that law, can you square that with Cygnus headline on their press release? Boy, that you know that that's a bit hard to reconcile. Yes. Yeah. Here, Cigna talks about the spine surgeon reviewing reviewing spine surgeries. Well, then why does there have to be a law that says that only physicians who are in that specialty? Mm-hmm. And they've talked about that 
you know, they've cut the time on this so much. Well, then why does it have to be a law that guarantees a certain turnaround time? Or that this is all about patient care quality. Well, why does it have to be a law that says it can't be all about money? Uh, yeah. So you're you're absolutely right. It, it's If truly everything that was happening on the payer side was for patient care and quality and to avoid cancers from unnecessary scans or unnecessary surgeries, legislature wouldn't have to come in and create these laws. And obviously... What's happening is the legislature understands what's going on, and that's why they're stepping in and saying, fine, yeah. you won't behave yourself. We've got to make laws to make you behave. So that was the introduction to the law. Some of the the highlights is, is like what I just mentioned. If there's a prior authorization request denied, it must be denied by a physician who's of the same specialty of the physician who manages the medical condition. That's something we've talked about before. We've talked about mm-hmm. it in the context of Dr. Hurley and in the, some of the ProPublica pieces in particular. Um, payers are required to respond to all prior authorization requests once necessary information is submitted and to pharmaceutical requests within 24 to 72 hours, depending on the urgency. Uh, and if a patient has received a prior authorization from a former health plan, their new plan must cover the treatment for at least 60 days until a new approval is processed. Uh, and then there's some other uh, requirements for hospital uh, services as well. Ron, what do you think uh, when you take a look at this law? Obviously, you know, we were talking about the CMS thing with Medicare plans last week. This is for, this includes commercial plans, but it does not include self-insured plans. Right. Um, Right. That's a key distinction, but it does include fully insured commercial plans. Mm -hmm. What do you think about this new New Jersey law so far? So a lot like the CMS thing, a good step in the right direction, but a small step. And Mm -hmm. this feels like, and, and I'm always careful to, differentiate what I think versus what I know. It's what I think, what it feels like. This feels like insurance lobbyists losing small. And what I mean by that is if you talk to, and I was just in Vegas, if you talk to a professional poker player, people who make a living at it, they say the key to making, to being a professional poker player is win big, lose small. Mm -hmm. Meaning you're going to lose some pots, make sure there's not much money in there. And when you got the winning hand, win big. What I mean by this feels like insurance lobbyists losing small. You look at this law, there's a number of things that look like that. For example, when it talks about that it has to be done within a certain time period, once all necessary information is submitted. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, one of the f- great things that insurance companies do, and every every physician rails against it, and they've all got examples of it, is they submit a request, you know, so many hours later, what do they get back? Oh, I need more medical records. Or, no, I need you to answer this 28-page form. Or I need you to, because as right. long as they keep doing that, it resets the clock. Well, I sure. don't have all the necessary information yet. Yep. Or the one they really hate is, oh, you submitted it? Well, I'm sorry, I didn't receive that. Please yep. submit it again. Okay, so there's, there's one right there. Mm-hmm. The fact that this is a state law rather than federal, which means it only applies to the fully insured. Well, that's, you know, for any one carrier in New Jersey, that's somewhere between 20 and 30% of their membership, which means the vast majority, this law doesn't apply to. Right. Um, so it, there are a lot of things in here. Um, you know, they've only got to cover it for 60 days until a new approval is mm-hmm. processed. Feels like the the insurance lobbyists going, hey, we're not going to be able to completely get rid of this. Now let's make it as watered down as we can. Sure. Yeah. So good step in the right direction, but not huge. Yep. Um, what would be interesting is if this ever gets to a federal discussion um, and if it ever got real teeth to it, like, and we've talked about this before, 
A medical director who signs off on a denial is practicing medicine and therefore can be held responsible, just like a physician who signs off on a drug that shouldn't be prescribed or fails to review a test or anything mm-hmm. like that. That pass a federal law like that. Now we've got some teeth to it. Yep. But it's a good first step. I, I, I agree. Unfortunately, with uh, one of New Jersey senators currently under indictment for corruption charges, I don't think this is going to be their focus for the rest of their term. But uh, who knows? I, I But I agree about the federal law portion. Yeah. Uh, one of the other interesting things that it requires is for payers to publish prior authorization requirements on their website. Uh, of the ones I looked at this afternoon, um, the Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield was the only one that had something um, readily accessible. Uh, now, it could be behind the in the provider section. I'm, I'm not sure. But at least with the Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield, they had a section where you can input a CPT code and it would spit out the prior authorization requirements. Of course, with the disclaimer that it was not a guarantee of, of payment in any way. Right. Um, another part of the publishing aspect was that payers must publish prior authorization data on their website, uh, including some of the statistics that they have and some of the reasons they've been denying uh, certain prior authorization requests. Now, of course, Ron, we know the payers, and by the way, the law does say in a readily accessible format, uh, mm-hmm. and that's a direct quote, and we know how much the payers like to comply with uh, uh, you know, transparency data in readily mm-hmm. accessible formats. Uh, I don't see an enforcement mechanism in here, and I'm not sure if you did, but I'm not, you know, that that that's obviously what's going to be forcing them to actually publish that information. Yeah, and I'm not sure that the payers are really that... Um that worried about publishing the information at a high level. Um, I think they're going to be okay with it. And in some ways, um, it may actually help them because part of what they sell to the employer is this idea that, well, us doing this lowers your healthcare costs, that if we didn't do this. Um, and, you, you know, you go back to that whole garbage of the, the Cigna press release. Sure. I could see them taking this data, publishing it, and saying, you know, we deny X percent of prior auths let's say, is if that's one of the statistics they report. And using that to employers, look, at, you know, if it weren't for us, you know, 20% of all these surgeries are unnecessary and they can hurt people and cost you a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, just like they're, you know, sort of twisting it and saying, because we denied this spine surgery, this great person didn't have to go through that pain and cost. Um, so I don't think they're that worried about publishing the statistics at a macro level. Mm-hmm. Um, what they don't want is you know, transparency at the individual micro level. Right. Which is what we're finding out from some of these class action lawsuits. It seems. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ron, uh, that's going to just about do it for time on this edition of the Flatlining Podcast. Uh, thanks for sitting down with me again. Oh, thank you. Enjoyed it. Miss an episode of the Flatlining Podcast? Well, now you can read a recap. Just go to flatlining.net and look right there on the homepage every Monday for a written recap on last week's episode.